this week, three sides of the coin. We talked to the reporter who did the two exclusive interviews for the new issue of Rock Candy Magazine, interviews with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. And boy, does it go down a rabbit hole of so many KISS discussions. You know, was Eric Carr on his way out already after Hot in the Shade? Was there really serious reunion discussions with Ace Fraley in the late 80s? Uh, Bruce Kulick. We talk about it all in, in this episode. A little elder talk. A lot of Carnival of Souls talk. Our guest is a big fan of Carnival of Souls. Me, not so much. But we had a great discussion. You want to stick to the end on this. Jeez. Three sides of the coin. Talking all things. Kiss. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. It's just one side to the coin today. Now, Lisa's here for a little bit before her computer completely crashes and she can't get back online. I don't know. Mark was providing her tech support. Now, Mark, Mark is uh, Mark somewhere on a beach right now eating crab legs. And Tommy, I think he had said something about he just got out of having um, an anal wart removed or something like that. I don't know why he had the same affliction that Mark had. Don't want to get into what's going on between those two guys. Um, no, Tommy had, uh, I think, a tooth pulled or something like that. He wasn't in any condition to be talking today. So it's just me, Lisa, for a little bit before her uh, computer dies on her. We do have an amazing long discussion here with a reporter and a KISS fan. Um, I'm not going to get into reading any comments off of the, the latest episode with Michael Rondelli. Just say go check it out so many great stories he was there when kiss did one of their very first showcases he was uh an assistant to eddie kramer um so he was in the studio with eddie kramer and he's worked with so many other artists um that was such a great interview last week with michael so go check that out um kiss news Nothing, nothing much. We, we are eagerly awaiting the new Off the Soundboard. That's a animalized show featuring Mark St. John on lead guitar for the whole show. Um, I think that's it. Let's just roll. We are joined by Andrew Daly today. Andrew is the reporter who did the new interviews with Gene, exclusive interviews with Gene and Paul for the new issue of Rock Candy Magazine, issue 36, which is out right now. Features Gene Simmons on the cover, front cover, Paul Stanley on the back cover. Andrew talks all about how he got those interviews, what it's like interviewing Gene and Paul, what's the difference between interviewing Gene and interviewing Paul, some of the cool things that came out of that interview. And then we just segue into some great fan discussions about the elder, about Carnival of Souls, about revenge, about Bruce Kulick, about Eric Carr, about was there going to be a reunion in the late '80s? Um, this is a this is a great fan discussion. 
So let it roll, Andrew Daly, and we'll see you at the end. Subscribe on YouTube, follow and rate us on Spotify. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. Three sides of the coin. Kind of winging it today because I, I don't know if it's actually that bad. Um, Mark's not here. And Tommy just had surgery. And not, not major surgery. It just he had an anal wart removed. Um, very minor. <laughs> very minor. <laughs> and, and, and if you've been following for the past few weeks, I only say that because that's what Tommy said. Mark was out for and Mark was getting email messages from people like, oh, Mark, I hope you're okay. <laughs> um, no, Tommy, Tommy had, uh, I think he said a root canal or a tooth pulled or something like that. Like and, tooth surgery or something. Yeah. And, and, and Mark is on his way to Florida to eat a whole bunch of crabs. So yeah, he had um, a layover in Atlanta and he texted me when he got to Atlanta. Not that you care. I'm just telling you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't care. I know. Like I'm just telling you. Because you know what? It's not Maybe like you went and hung with them, right? Maybe people do care. So there you go. No, it's not they all really about don't. you, Mike. All right. Home, homework question. Does anybody care that Mark had a layover in Atlanta? <laughs> anybody? <'Cause>, I do. Because <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Whatever. It was nice that he had a layover and he thought about me and he texted me and said hello. Yeah. He secretly was like, could you bring out a bucket of crabs while yeah. I'm sitting here in the airport? <laughs> well, I'm in a layover. Can you come out and bring me some food? Oopsie. Yeah, bring me some food and feed me. Um, we are joined this week by Andrew Daly. Now, if you pay attention to a lot of, and not just KISS-related stuff, but a lot of a interviews lot. and magazine articles that are out there, Andrew's does a, Andrew, you do a boatload of artist interviews and articles i mean it's just like holy crap where do you find the time to do all of this stuff because you are all over the place with our and and not just for one website you you write for countless outlets don't you yeah i, I mean i uh i have my own website about music i found it a few years back but that's like taking a back seat to be honest i the big ones I write for Guitar World Online and the Print Mag, uh, Rock Candy Magazine, which is a print magazine, uh, Goldmine Online and Print, Guitar.com. Um, I can't even remember myself. Those Metal are some sucks. pretty, pretty uh, big names there. Good for you. Yeah, Metal Sucks, um, Ultimate Guitar, Classic Rock History, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, that's why I, I guess I am all over the place when I think about it. <laughs> yeah, you are honestly all over the place. It's like, you know, when I see your interview, I'm like, I have no idea where it might show up. Because, you know, again, you write for so many. Um, but I thought we would um, at least kick off this conversation talking about Rock Candy Magazine. So... For Three Sides listeners, if you aren't aware, the new issue that was just released like a week ago, within the last week, issue 36, um, features, they kind of call it a dual cover, front cover, back cover. And it's it's Gene Simmons on the front cover and it's Paul Stanley on the back cover. And it's uh, brand new, exclusive interviews with each of those guys that you did 
I did. Um, and it's and it's all around. You know, the whole point was it's all around the Creatures of the Night box set because it's photos of them and their Creatures of the Night costumes from back in the day. Um, and listen, we 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 we've said many times how cool Rock Candy is as a magazine. It's you know, if you weren't there, you won't really know. But if you were there, this is like old school Krang. This is old school original Krang. It's got some of the original Krang writers behind it. They, you know, they're covering the same stuff they covered back then. And and honestly, they're not they're not so much about covering new music by those bands in the most part they want to cover those bands back from back in the day they do a lot of historical articles and and stuff so um yeah you and this is the first if i recall isn't this the first interview first articles you've done for rock candy yeah it's true um i can give you the story of how it kind of happened yeah please please so, you know, it's the way the whole, the whole genes, it's a sort of an interesting thing how it developed. Um, I'd been in communications with the KISS camp since probably, well, I interviewed Paul Stanley a couple of years ago from my own website. So I had a good, uh, I had a good rapport with McGee Management and the PR company. And um, somewhere along the way, you know, this past summer, I, I interviewed Larry Mazur, if you remember. Oh, yeah. And he had some polarizing things to say. And so what ended up happening was is McGee management, uh, you know, said, hey, do you want to interview Doc? <laughs> and so I did. And ultimately developed a good rapport with McGee management after the Doc McGee interview. And uh, one thing led to another. And it came to be that you want to talk to Gene. I can get you Gene. So I got iced for a few months. Originally, it was going to be for my own website. Things changed. And uh, by the time... I actually interviewed Gene. I had been in communications with Rock Candy about coming on to write for them. And, uh, you know, so we started talking about what have you got available, what's coming up. And Gene Simmons' name came up and the editor, Howard Johnson, said, well, Gene Simmons, that's that's a cover story right there. (laughs) And so it came to be. I did the interview with Gene. We spoke for uh, about 40 minutes. We did. We talked about creatures. um, But really, the interview with Gene was a career spanning interview, of course, a truncated one because with a career like Kiss, you could sit there for five hours. So, um, you know, we did the whole nine yards and uh, that was that. And that's the gene part of it. And uh, I'll let you segue back into it because there's other interviews with Paul and which is the other part of the story of the rock candy thing. Well, yeah, continue. How how did how did the Paul interview then um, become part of that? Well, the way the Paul thing happened was, um, you know, I write for Guitar World and um, I was working, I'm working on, I'm working on an article, which hasn't happened yet. It will happen uh, about landmark Kiss guitars. And, um, you know, obviously I, I wanted some antidotes from Ace and Bruce, and Paul, and, you know, obviously it will never happen, Vinny. And uh, so I said, hey, can I get a couple of quotes from Paul about these guitars? And ultimately the way that it happened was, is it's, well, Paul's free today. Do you do you want to sit down and talk with Paul? And so I said, well, yeah. And so it turned into a thing where I got a couple quotes that I needed. And I said, well, I have no time limit. Uh, it was a, a few days before Thanksgiving. I said, well, I just go for it. And so 
I'm, as I'm about to get on the phone with Paul Stanley, I'm going back and forth with Howard. And I said, hey, I'm about to get on the phone with Paul Stanley. Does Rock Candy need another interview? And Howard said, go for it. And so, I, so right then and there, it was decided that I was going to do an interview with Paul. We talked for 35 minutes. And if you've read the interview, it's a very different one because it's really, you know, Paul, when he gets interviewed most of the time, it's history stuff. It's, you know, Ace Freely, Peter Chris, your relationship with Gene, whatever. This one was none of that. We talked about as the Paul's history with his guitars, uh, starting back with, you know, when he visited the DiMarzio Pickups Factory in, the, in New York City, um, you know, his early times with Ibanez and why he created the Iceman and him talking about the cracked mirror Iceman, how he cut his hand on it. And the first time he played it, he smashed it at the end of the show and realized there's glass all over the stage and just the whole history uh, of his guitars and his approach to the guitar. And it's a very different interview because, you know, Paul is a good guitar player, but he's always overshadowed by whoever else is in the band. So it was really interesting to get Paul's thoughts on guitars and, uh, you know, Les Paul's and what makes Gibson special and what makes his Ibanez guitar special. And uh, that interview was literally, it went from me just trying to get a few quotes from him to, in the moment, having the opportunity to do a full-blown interview on guitars with him and get this really unique piece for Prince, which ended up in Rock Candy as the double cover. That That's awesome. And and I, I, I want to dig into, and I want to do this more, you know, for our listeners, because, you know, I've, I've interviewed both Gene and Paul over the years because I worked with them. But I want to get your take on, the difference between each of those guys when you're doing an interview, how, you know, from your reaction, how were they different? How, you know, how talkative were they or weren't they, you know, (laughs) they're they're as fans, I think you can get a sense reading interviews by each guy, what they're like, but you talked to both of them for one magazine. What was your take when you were done? Like, wow. Paul was this, Gene was that, completely, you know, was it like an oil and water type of thing that comes together and it worked perfectly? What was your take on the differences between the two of them? Well, I'll start by saying that the first ever quote-unquote live interview I ever did, um, you know, face-to-face was Paul Stanley. And um, so then that was years back. And so this was a very different experience, I'll say that. But aside from that, You know, everybody knows who Gene and Paul are, and they don't make any bones about it. Um, And I will say, you know, I've interviewed a lot of artists, and I'm not ever phased by however they're going to react. I'm prepared for it. I'm not bothered. And I will say that in this instance, that they both were exactly who you would think they are. And to me, they were great. You know, there's some people that will interview Gene Simmons and they'll say, wow, you know, that guy, I don't want to talk to him again. He has a big head. He's terrible. He's this or that. Or he said this about how rock is dead. And in my interview, I mean, Gene said that. Um, You know, it's not hard to get a polarizing quote out of Gene Simmons. And it's not I'm not the type of journalist that goes headline hunting. It's more just he does it himself. You can ask a question and he's going to say what he's going to say. He's confident. He's extremely articulate. Um, And, you know, when you read something in print, you have no idea what the intention is, but that, you know, but that person, what they said. 
you can't hear the inflection in their voice. Uh, I will say with Gene, he's extremely soft-spoken and very thoughtful. And, you know, some of his quotes may sound big and loud and ridiculous. And it's like, you know, in the way the media will portray it, it's, you know, headline, Gene Simmons says this about Vinnie Vincent or whatever. No matter how big the headline is, he's extremely soft-spoken and he's very thoughtful in what he says. It's thought out, it's articulate, and he means it. And he's thought about it. It's not as off the cuff as you think. And uh, that's the thing about Gene. He doesn't care. He's honest. And now there's always the argument to be made is with that honesty, is that his truth or is that the truth? And that's another matter entirely. But <laughs> right, he's honest and he's thoughtful. Now, Paul is a different sort of guy, um, also a great guy, and he's a really enjoyable person to speak to. And the thing about Paul, and this is something that I keyed in on in my conversation, is that he knows a lot more about guitar and music and creating music than a lot of people give him credit for. You have to remember, this is a guy who's written how many amazing, popular, catchy tunes, you know? You could say what you will about him as a songwriter or, you know, his things being repetitive or simple. They're great songs. And if you have the opportunity to talk to him more about just what are your thoughts on Ace Freely, you know, it's, it's a really great, chance to get an insight into the musician rather than the mouthpiece if that makes sense and he too he's very uh articulate he's definitely more measured in his responses um you know he's not he's not out there to create headlines now if you follow paul on twitter or instagram or whatever he will speak his mind but um he's definitely more measured and i think he has he's more pr minded so that's the biggest difference between the two. Um, there's definitely an underlying confidence with both Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. It's an unspoken confidence. They know who they are. They've known what they what they've done, and uh, they have nothing to prove to anybody. And that definitely comes out in the way that they speak. But um, I mean, I you know, as far as I'm concerned, extremely enjoyable to talk to. You don't have to have you know be a Kiss fan to enjoy speaking to these guys. Um, especially if you ask questions to get the most out of them. And, and, and related to questions, did you put some thought and effort in advance into how to word questions or what you're going to ask so you could try to avoid getting the typical KISS story response to a question and hopefully get something a little more honest a little more real i mean because i think as fans we you, you could read an interview and you can you can see the question and go i know exactly the answer for that question it's going to be yeah. i'm not you know i'm not a pig i'm the whole hog type of thing you know <laughs> uh, which that you know that's fine that's part of the rock and roll persona of these guys of any frankly any artist who's been around for 40 50 years it's the same way how did you approach that in hopes of getting something that was not just, gee, this could have just been an interview that was given to anybody else out there? Yeah, going into it, you know, look, I've been a, I've been a Kiss fan probably since I came out of the womb, it seems like. And, uh, you know, like you, I know every, all of it, you know. So that's the thing. I went into it knowing, specifically Gene, because, I, you know, I had time to think about the Gene interview. There wasn't the Paul thing. 
was a different kind of a different animal. I'll, I'll get to that. But Gene, I was very aware of exactly what you're saying. That you know, if you ask him, you know, basically, if you depending on what you ask him, you're going to get a Wikipedia answer. And I didn't want to have that. Um, you know, I definitely consider myself a knowledgeable Kiss fan, probably more knowledgeable than most, just because let's be frank, I'm obsessed. <laughs> and also because I'm a music journalist. So I would hope that I know what I'm talking about to a certain degree. But, um, you know, I, I was cognizant of the fact that I needed to ask things that would hopefully get more thought provoking answers. And, you know, when you're talking, it depends on what kind of an interview you're doing. I mean, in this instance, you know, I'm talking to Gene Simmons for Rock Candy, so I'm not there to talk about his bass gear or his approach to the bass, right? So in this particular instance, you want history. And so you can do it one of two ways. You can ask softball questions and try to get headlines, which is cheapy. And it's not good journalism for the most part, in my opinion, anyway. Or you can ask questions that are, you know, you, you know what, you're going to get a stock interview. So my, my whole thing is when I'm doing a historical interview where I'm not going to dig into the musicianship, musicianship, <laughs> I try to ask questions that will extract out the intention of why they did things. We know, we know that supposedly Ace and Paul and, P, uh, and Gene voted Peter out of the band. But you can ask further questions to try to understand the intention. What was going on with Peter? And again, we've heard him say, oh, well, Peter was on drugs and Peter did this. But the point being is you can ask probing questions. Now, of course, you have to be experienced enough to do that and you have to be fearless enough to do that. You know, I, I am not afraid to ask any artist any question. I'm not bothered. I've had artists get angry at me. I've had artists scoff at things and it happens. Uh, it comes with the territory when you ask strangers a question for a living. <laughs> but um you have to be fearless in an interview and be unafraid to ask questions that might ruffle feathers. And to be frank, the artist, when he's in that chair, he needs to expect it to happen. If he goes in there expecting for me to, you know, regurgitate a Wikipedia history of Kiss, then what's the point? Um, and with Paul, I got to be totally honest with you, the internet, that interview was completely off the cuff. Um, <laughs> I had a couple of, and I've done that many times, you know, either going in just because I, I just said I'm going to freestyle this thing or sometimes an artist will force you to go in another direction and sometimes you just have to go with it. Now, I told you that with the Paul interview, it pretty much all came together within minutes before where I found out I'm going to have time with this guy. I might as well make the most of it. And so I did. And I basically, as I said, I did a guitar interview, which I've done enough of you know, to be able to properly ask him the questions that I need to ask to get his insights on the guitar and his history, coupled with the fact that I know his history and Kiss enough to make it engaging. And that's why I'm very proud of the Gene Simmons interview. And I think it's a great, uh, you know, quasi career spanning interview. I was told by a few people that are big Kiss guys that they got some new insights out of it. And that's great. But I'm more proud of the Paul interview, um, mostly because I think it's unique and he doesn't get asked to do straight up let's talk about guitar and, and gear interviews too often and i don't think rock candy runs too many of those either so it was unique in a couple ways yeah I, you know it's it's a challenge for a journalist to do any interviews and when you've got somebody of the level of gene and paul it can be quite intimidating um, 
right out of the bat before they've even opened their mouth to answer the first question. And, and I think as you know, and anybody who might've interviewed them, they can make it even more intimidating when they start answering those questions, especially Gene. Gene has a tendency to want to, I don't know, how would I describe it? Remind you, you who he is and what he's done. You and, you out. Yeah, 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 he, he will. You know, Paul has always been uh, a much more, in my opinion, well thought out, gracious gentleman type of thing. He's not, he's not, he's not going to go for your throat just because he can go for your throat. Where there's cases where Gene, like you said, sometimes Gene will just all of a sudden snap into that demon and it's just like, you're my, you're my, my prey for the day, you know? Um, so approaching interviews with artists and then artists of their level can be quite challenging. You know, I've, I've talked to people who are like, yeah, I went in there with just simple questions because I didn't want to upset them. And you're like, well, you're not going to get anything out of that then as well. And, and if you don't listen to what they, their answers are, you might miss the opportunities to get an even better discussion and answer out of it because I, you know, Gene and here, let me give you an example. So when, when Blackie Lawless did his um, VIP meet and greets and he does like a good half hour, 40 minute Q and a with the fans during that meet and greet. And he starts each one of them. Like, you know, I've been doing interviews for 40 years I mean, I think, I think Blackie is as well-versed at interviews as Gene and Paul is. And it's like, I've heard them all. And I don't want, I don't want questions from the fans who are just like, yeah, there's that, there's that reporter question again of what's your favorite song to play live on stage? What is your favorite Kiss album? What is your favorite, you know? And I think artists actually really enjoy Q and A's where it's a different question. It's it, you know, and I've seen this in a couple of times with Blackie where he's like, nobody's ever asked me that before. And you yeah. cause them to stop and actually think for 15, 20 seconds before they start talking about it. And that's the sort of stuff that won't happen if you want to play play it safe in a Q and a, in an interview, you've got, you've got, you've got to, I think it helps like in your case that you're a fan. So you're like, what the fuck do I want to ask that same question that's been asked a million times over? I'm going to get the answer. I know exactly. I could write the answer down before they even give it back to me. So can it, I guess where I'm going with this is, can it be a little challenging or intimidating to sit there and go, okay, I'm ready to pull this question out that I don't think's ever been asked. It's either going to go really good or it could go really bad. <laughs> you know, I, I, I pride myself on being a journalist that, that has heard a lot of times, nobody's ever asked me that before, or that's interesting, you know, or at the end of it, they'll tell me that was a really great interview. You, you gave me something different. You've made it worth my time. And that's the whole thing is I, you know, I, I, I understand that not everybody gets the opportunity to, you know, interview rock stars, let alone do so for Guitar World and Rock Candy, right? So I don't, 
I don't look at it as a challenge necessarily. I look at it as this is the job. You know, if I'm going to, you know, I understand what goes along with having to do an interview or to for doing an interview for Rock Candy or for Guitar World or Goldmine. You know what I mean? If you hand in something substandard as a piece of shit, you know, you're not going to have that opportunity anymore. And so it doesn't be, you know, for me personally, it doesn't behoove me to play it safe. And I'm not, and I don't have any interest, you know, I don't, I've never done an interview, honestly, with the intention of saying, I'm going to make a headline. I don't have any interest. If something gets picked up by, you know, uh, louder or whatever, you know, whatever aggregate news post and they pick it up. Great. That's cool. Whatever. But really I'm about putting together a quality piece for a quality outlet. And so for me, there's no intimidation. Look, I, I've done literally over a thousand interviews in my life, be it email, phone, Zoom. It's, I don't have any intimidation anymore. There's not a single artist out there that scares me or I worry about that I can't handle. Um, a lot of it is up to chance, though. I mean, you know, you get people like I interviewed Buzz Osborne from the Melvins and he made it really hard for me just because that's the way he is. And I had, he made me work for it before he opened up. And then I have people that the first question, they'll talk for 15 straight minutes. I'm sure you've experienced it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, on, on the show, it comes to mind, like Ted Nugent and Dennis DeYoung were that way. We yeah. had them on and, and we basically said, hey, how you doing? And then we sat back as both of those guys separately in their own interviews, like talk nonstop for the next hour, but yep. not in bad talking. It was like they there was so much deep, interesting stuff coming out that as a good reporter, I think that's where you sit back and it's just like, let if, if it's going well, let them take it and let them run with it. Listen for what they're saying, because every once in a while you might want to interrupt them and go, could you go down that rabbit hole a little further <laughs> for us? We've never heard that before. Or you just mentioned something that contradicts what we've all thought for 40 years as fans um and you're right some of these people it's just like wow you you know they've got a lot to say but it is like pulling teeth to get them to open up and say anything you know they might give you the yes no i don't know you know and you're like come on you got to give me more than one word answers here you can feel the energy shift sometimes. I've gone into interviews so many times and they know who I'm interviewing it for. They know I've interviewed, you know, some of their, you know, their buddies and whatever. They don't care. They, they'll make me earn it for the first five minutes. They, they'll do it. I know what they're doing. I, I know it. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's fine. And then all of a sudden, like clockwork, they'll open right up and everything changes. And it's like, and you can just see the energy shift. But it's funny, you know. It, it, as far as like preparation for these things, I don't know how, how you do it and everybody has their own process. I learned a long time ago that if I write down a list of questions and I stick to it, it's not going to be a good interview because yeah, you like I can't tell you how many times the whole thing went off the rails after the first question where I had to shift just because it's like Dave Mustaine wants to take it this way or, or Gene Simmons well, wants and, to take and, it and, that and, way. And, and, and going <laughs> off the rails in a good way, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people might think when you say off the rails, it's like, oh, it just turns into an absolute nightmare interview. And and yeah. and no, it's not. And, you know, the way we approach our interviews here is there's, there's no show prep. I mean, we literally do zero show prep. 
there's no pre-interviews with the with the guests. There's no submitting questions. There's none of us sitting here. I I think, at least speaking for myself, I can't speak for Lisa or, or Mark or Tommy. I always have in the back of my mind some go-to questions. So if things start stalling or getting a yep. little slow, I can throw a question out there that's been in the back of my mind. But the hope is always to sit down and go, hey, Dennis DeYoung, great to meet you. So tell us about, and that's it. That starts a conversation. And and at least from our standpoint, and, and I, and, you know, writing for an article for a magazine is different than what we do on a podcast. We're recording conversations here. We're not writing an article because, I mean, I'm sure as you could attest, you know, there was probably a bunch of stuff that was cut out of your interviews that just had to be cut because of yep. constraints of space. Where on an interview like this, you can just hit the record button. We can here you go. Two and a half hours later, we finally have to say goodbye because we've got to get on with our lives. But I think you're right. If you go in and I can see this, having done this long enough, I can see the art, the interview, the reporters who go in with a set of questions and I can read that interview or I can listen to that podcast interview and go, you had 10 questions and you literally went from one, two, three, four, five, because that first question, as they were answering it, I could see or sense they were already looking for the opportunity to ask question number two, not take the answer to question number one and let that, as you just said, go off the rails and follow a whole different, deeper conversation. It's all about the follow-up. I mean, interviewing any artist, it could, you could be interviewing a 20-year-old kid just who just broke in playing a guitar. You could be interviewing, you know, Jim McCarty, the drummer for the Yardbirds, who's 80. It doesn't matter that you have to follow up. Um, if you don't, you're not getting the most out of it. And, you, it, it, you know, I always call it, the word I call it is I can I see the same thing when I read an interview, when it reads super staccato and there's no sort of flow to the conversation. And, you know, it's a funny thing because in print, you need to keep things sort of reined in and on track. And the flow though is very important with print because they're not there to hear the conversation. It's up to you as the writer, the interviewer, the writer and the editor to be able to create something that flows properly. You know, and, and that's, that's in how you ask the questions and how you phrase things. And then in the back end, as you alluded to, sometimes you have to cut things out and uh, you know how you piece it all together. Um, it's a, it definitely is a very different thing than recording something uh, like a video or you know for audio. It's 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 a it's a very arduous process. I will say it's not for everybody. No, it, it's it's not. I, you know, I will say even for like our interviews, um, even when you've got somebody who just goes off and talks for a half hour on their own, there's still a process and and work involved in keeping the conversation moving, steering properly. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you still have to make sure it flows. And, and sometimes that's just a matter of, I mean, I, I remember sometimes I just come around and go, Hey, can we 
go back and and continue talking about this as much as it was great that we spent the last five minutes off on this subject it really was completely unrelated to you know what was going on here you're talking about your dog or your family or whatever um hold on lisa's messaging me because she is having some problems with zoom here give me a second here and see what's going on uh, she hasn't moved in a minute there yeah she's frozen I'm going to uh, I'm going to remove her. Cancel Lisa Martini. Remove. Remove. Okay. So if she shows up, she'll just pop in again. Um. Yeah, you know, I so, sometimes I I. I don't know who made this comment. I saw this once on Facebook where somebody's like, you know, a lot of people who call themselves journalists these days are actually just journalists churning. They yeah. just want to churn out as much content as possible without any concern about the quality of the content. Yeah. And and that that was a, such a great eye-opening comment because yeah, I think the internet has turned a lot of people into journalists. It's like, let me just get that interview. Let me hit the record button. Great. Thank you. We're done. I posted that. And I've got to interview somebody else in the next hour. It's like, that's not journalism. That's yeah. just recording content and dumping it out there. Yeah, it's kind of it kind of goes back to what I said before, how I mean, look, there's a lot of there's a lot of outlets that you can write for out there. And I will say the expectation of quality, you know, for each outlet varies. For me, it doesn't matter where I'm writing. I have an expectation of quality that I, I have to adhere to. And it, it, that's the two reasons for that is number one, when you're writing for an outlet like Guitar World, um, let's just say online, just to start, the expectation is obviously is what it is, right? But then once you get to writing for the print magazine, you're talking about something that's going to be on newsstands all over the world. You know what I mean? So you obviously you wouldn't even be there if you weren't putting together a quality piece. But now, you know, when you write for Rock Candy and Guitar World and Goldmine, that's it. That is the standard. You have set your own standard. And you, let's just say even if I go write for Classic Rock History, which is a great outlet, but it's not obviously not Guitar World. Right. If I go put something on Classic Rock History, that's a piece of garbage that reflects and, you know, you don't ever want to have, you know, it's like when you start writing for bigger outlets, you have a responsibility to maintain the quality that you put for those outlets everywhere you go. And so it's better to, you have to maintain that quality. And you alluded to earlier that I put a lot of stuff out. I will say it's, it's difficult to put out that much stuff at that high level. But, you know, luckily I'm blessed with the ability to be able to do that. But um, to your point, I would say to anybody that calls himself a journalist to always maintain your quality first and work yourself up to being able to put out quantity because you can put out as much as you want. If it's crap, it doesn't matter. It yeah. And, 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 and at the end of the day, that quality is what's going to be what's going to reflect on you. And that's what's going to get you interview opportunities. Yep. You know, an, an artist doesn't want to do an interview with somebody they know produces crappy 
poor quality interviews. Oh yeah. I mean, even when I, there was a time when I had my own website, which does pretty well. It did pretty well. And I was able to bring in, I mean, look, it's so much easier. I'm not going to lie to you and sit here and say, it's not easier to get an interview with Gene Simmons or Dave Mustaine or Tracy Guns or whomever, when you know that you're going to be doing it for Guitar World or Rock Candy and you can say so. This being said, I mean, I can't tell you how many big name artists I, I interviewed for Vinyl Rider Music, which, which was and remains an independent website, just based on the quality alone. Um, and obviously when you build that up and then you have a cachet of great artists, I mean, I interviewed Joe Perry for Vinyl Rider Music. I interviewed Dave Mustaine, Paul Stanley, you know, Bruce Kulick, a, a lot of big names um, for an independent website. And it was specifically because of the quality that I was able to put forth and that I, after the fact, would make a huge, you know, guerrilla effort to get it out there because I don't have the social following that a larger website would be. So it's, it's a different thing. And so, you know, that the important thing about that for me is it instilled in me a do or die need to have the utmost highest quality every single time out. Because when you're an independent site and all you've got is quality and nothing else, you better, you better, you better adhere to it or you're going to have nothing. And that's the quality that got me in the door with other, you know, more larger outlets, of course. What's your, what's your feeling on, on interviews that at some point throw a gotcha question in there? Like, uh, you know, you alluded to it earlier, trying to get that headline, trying to, you know, there's, there's, there's some controversy going on and I'm going to, I, I want to be the person to catch you on this and put you in the corner. You know, does that, does that help your career as a writer? What, what, what is the end result if you try and pull a gotcha on an artist in an interview? So here's the thing about that. If you're, if you're a real journalist, like a real journalist, which writes for real outlets and talks to real artists and then tends to actually make money doing this, be it as a side career or a career. If you're going to go out there and try to do gotcha questions, you're not going to get anywhere. It's not real journalism. And I mean, look, we all know the, we all know the publications that, that do the got you stuff. And look, I get it. I understand that, the, that, you know, this is, it's all about money at the end of the day. It's all, it's all publicity and money and it's about views. But I've had plenty of interviews where I've had artists say things where it was like, whoa, okay, that's something else right there. But it's never solicited. I don't ask questions to try to solicit an, an answer. I And, you know, there are some people that would say, well, that's that's your problem, Andrew. You're not going to you're not going to get all the headlines. And, you know, my interview with so and so is going to be the one that Blabbermouth picks up and yours won't. And my response to that is, well, that's no problem because my interview will be a complete uh, piece that's, that is artistically sound, represented the artist properly. And guess what? I got paid to do it for a great outlet. So I'd much rather get paid or, uh, you know, to do a high quality interview with a high quality outlet than post some piece of shit, to be frankly, that got picked up by Babbermouth. That means nothing to me. And I, that's not real journalism. You know what I mean? There's plenty of people out there that waste artists' time and waste people's time. And again, I get it. I get the need for it. It's aggregate news. It, it gets headlines. It brings people in. 
it's all it's all a numbers and money game. But if we're talking about real journalists writing for real outlets, trying to provide proper coverage for a legitimate artist, if you're going to go in there and ask and ask got you questions, one of two things is going to happen. The other real journalists are going to see that and know that you did it and you're just going to have to live with it. Or you might never talk to that artist again, because, for example, let's just say that I got on the phone and talked to a member of Aerosmith today. And at the end of it, I hit them with a got you question about Steven Tyler. Well, guess what? I'm probably never going to talk to that member or any member of Aerosmith ever again. And that's the ramifications of that. Another example would be if you're a journalist out there and you want to hop on the phone with Dave Mustaine, if you want to hit Dave Mustaine with a got you question about, you know, the issues with David Ellison at the end of it, guess what? He's going to answer it. But you know what? His publicist is going to see it and you will never talk to Dave Mustaine again. Well, I was I was going to say, not only will you not talk to that artist, you may not talk to a lot of artists yep. because one publicist can represent dozens and hundreds of artists managers can be the same way record labels can be the same way and it can spread pretty quickly that hey don't talk to this this interviewer because they're just going to try and throw a question at you well the other part of that is if you're lucky enough to find yourself in a position where you can get paid to ask people questions for a living you you got there for a reason right but that can be taken away in an instant. And the reality is, is that if you're in that position, it's because you've proved yourself to be somebody that operates with integrity, can quite honestly get the interview out in front of enough eyes to make it worth their time, which is money. And number three, because you're trustworthy. Now, if you do things to breach those, if you're not trustworthy and you do shady things, you're not going to talk to these people anymore. Uh, you know, if you go in there and you ask questions that you shouldn't be asking or that you're asked not to ask or you hit them with a got you question yeah you're you're not going to be in a position to continue to ask people questions for a living for very long because word will travel and outlets and you got to remember too not only will you be blackballed from talking to those people you probably are going to get blackballed from talking to certain people for certain outlets because you know outlets don't want to deal with bullcrap they don't want to no. deal with with they don't want their rep they don't want their reputation ruined by an interview by a by a third party reporter that you know now no. drags that outlet into the the muck precisely so my opinion is number 1 not real journalism number 2 i mean let's just say you don't care about integrity or you know doing the right thing you're just not going to have a career in it for very long that's the ramification if you think you're a journalist because you go around and you monger headlines and you get blabbermouth to pick up your crappy interview with gotcha questions that you got ted nugent or d snyder to say that you should probably think again and look i mean if your deal is that you want to get paid to do that then by all means go for it and it's fine but that's not that's not legitimate real journalism that's that's it just isn't Let's let's circle back to Gene and Paul and, and your interviews with them. Um, you know, the like I said, the the issues on on newsstands now and can be ordered online, and you can get a, a digital copy of it right away. And for for our listeners and our viewers who haven't seen it yet, what are a couple things from each of those guys, Gene and Paul, 
that you were like, wow, that was uh, that was a great answer, or that was something I didn't know. That was that was news to me. You know, we have that all the time on the podcast here, where it's just like, you know, it's the the minutia. You know, was there just that little tidbit where you're like, holy crap, I never knew that about whatever the topic was. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I asked. Um, let's see, you know, I started from the very beginning with Gene. He gave some very interesting insights about being a child in Israel and how all of that kind of affected him, which a lot of that is known. Um, but he dug into a little bit of how the emotional impact of growing up in that setting and watching his mother struggle a little bit, how that impacted him and it kind of willed him to succeed a little bit. You get, you know, some of that's out there, but he gave a little bit of a different spin, which was cool. Um, one of the things that I thought was cool, too, was, um, and there's a reason I asked this question, I asked him specifically about Bill Coin, because Bill Coin has been, you know, lionized a lot, uh, it, you know, especially in regards to his role in the success of Kiss. A lot of people will say that Kiss couldn't have succeeded without Bill. I would wager that Kiss succeeded in spite of Bill. If you look at what, how Bill managed bands like Stars in New England, you know, it's pretty obvious that he, he managed them into the ground. He didn't, and that may have been for a lot of reasons. Gene gave some pretty cool insights into, you know, if Kiss could or would have succeeded with or without Bill. And his, his honest answer was really, he's not sure. Which is a little interesting because a lot of times in the past, Paul and Gene are, you know, they will pound the chest for Bill Coyne and say, we couldn't have done this without him. But he really gave an, in an answer where he pretty much said, you know, I'm not really sure if Kiss could have succeeded with or without Bill. Um, he, you know, he did say that Bill did a lot for us, but he wasn't definitive, which I, which was interesting um, for somebody that's usually very definitive. He did give an I'm not sure answer. And um then I just really thought it was neat the way that he sort of broke down some of the origins of Kiss's early songs. He gave a little bit of, he kind of peeled back the onion a little bit of how him and Paul used to work together to put together early Kiss songs, you know, like Black Diamond and Deuce and things like that. And um, some of that's out there, but as I'm reading it, you know, there was just some little extra insights into how those things came together. And um one of the cool things, and this was the probably the big headline, if my memory serves, was, uh, and this is new to recent Gene, is that he's been giving Ace a little bit of props and that he was right <laughs> about what uh, what Kiss should have been doing in the early 80s. And because uh, everybody that knows Ace and what Ace says is Ace always said, well, I always said that we shouldn't have done the Elder and we should have stayed a rock band. And Gene gave Ace a lot of props um, that he was correct yeah, but he also he also said that that wasn't the only reason that he left the band. So really, I, I think the interview with Gene, you're going to see some things that you knew. But the good thing is, is I got him to expand on those things a little bit and reveal some extra things. Uh, I, I kind of tried to dig into the intention of why he did things. You're, you know, this is what you've always said. What did you mean by that? Um, and so, yeah, that was the cool thing about Gene and Paul. I mean, honestly. Again, I, I I have never really seen an interview that was start to finish just about his guitars. Um, I thought it was really neat, you know, him running through the history of why he created the Iceman. 
Um, I didn't know that when he closed his eyes, that even though the guitar looks nothing like a Les Paul, that when he closed his eyes, he wanted it to feel like a Les Paul. And I've never played one, so I can't attest to that. I thought one of the cool antidotes was um, when he brought the cracked mirror Iceman out on the Dynasty tour, he talked about how, you know, he smashed it at the end of the concert. And if you know anything about those guitars, there's literally pieces of broken mirror glued to the slab of wood. That was what it is. And when he smashed it, he he didn't even think, but there was broken glass all over the stage and he he tossed it into the crowd without thinking of it. And <laughs> afterward, he was like, whoops, probably shouldn't have done that. And uh, <laughs> but I mean, you can totally see how that would happen. Here's a guy that smashes his guitars at the end of the concert. He's playing this fractured mirror guitar. He smashes the thing, tosses it out and looks down and sees a bunch of broken glass on the stage. And he's like, whoops, <laughs> So mm -hmm. I thought that was cool. And one of the cool things, and the real guitar nerdery started later in the interview where he talked about the Gibson Custom Shop and how 94, 1994 Les Pauls out of the Custom Shop are some of the best that Gibson ever made. And he dug into the types of wood and why that is. And the Paul Stanley interview, I, I'm quite proud of. Uh, it, it gives an insight into Paul Stanley, the guitarist more than anything else because i think everybody always sees him as the voice of kiss the front man of kiss the star child the this the that but you got to remember this is a guy from start to finish at every kiss concert has a guitar in his hands and he's a good guitar player and um he doesn't get enough credit for that and i think i hope that this interview will will give kiss fans a real unique insight into paul stanley the guitar player because i mean it, did, it gave that to me which is very cool was there a question to each of them that either you didn't get the chance to ask or you didn't get the answer you expected? With Gene, I got to be honest, it, I, you know, it's one of those things where I had a scaffolding going in, but I mean, going in, in his, his, his PR person said, you got to keep Gene on track. He'll go off and he'll talk and talk and talk. I said, okay, no problem. But, um, yeah, I mean, with Gene, that was one of those things where he would say something and I'm like, I got to follow up on that. And then he'd say another thing and I'm like, well, I got to follow up on that. And it, the, the, as he was talking, the nature of the interview kept shifting into my mind. And I'm sure you've been there as an interviewer where you're like, all right, I asked this question. He's going to answer and then I'll probably go to this depending. We'll see what goes on. And then he says something and I'm like, OK, follow up. But then he would say another thing. and I'm like, oh, fuck, that's another follow up. <laughs> So yeah, how do, how, 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 how do you follow up with something so from I'm like, all right, 15 minutes? And you have past. to make these split section decisions in your head where you're yeah. like, depending on which follow up I make, this is going to change the entire trajectory of the interview. And there's a lot. And you, as you know, this stuff happens second to second, minute to minute. you got to be on your toes. And that comes with experience. Um, I can't <laughs> I can't say that there was necessarily a question that I didn't get to ask, but I can say that there was a lot of questions that I thought I might ask in the minute that immediately evaporated from my mind because I had to take it in a different direction. That interview with Gene is what I hoped it would be a, a, a truncated career spanning interview. Uh, and it went, it pretty much started where I thought it would go. I took it to where I needed it to go to touch on all the bases. Gene, took it some places that I didn't expect it to go. And I suppose if there's one 
area I didn't get to touch on. It's the, well, the Bruce Kulick hair metal era of Kiss. And the reason for that being is I had to really key in on the Vinnie Vincent era. And uh, to be honest, by the time that was done, my clock was ticking and I knew I had to get into the reunion side of things and the now side of things to button it up properly. So we touched on the 80s hair metal stuff, but if I had had another 15 minutes, <laughs> and as far as Paul, that was, a, I, I, I can't stress enough. This, I knew about, I knew that I was going to talk about uh, his love for Gibson, Ibanez, the BC Rich, and then his move back to I, uh, Ibanez guitars after his foray into Washburn. That's all I knew. Everything else was off the cuff, and I basically fed off of what he said and my knowledge of guitars and guitar interviews to put it together. So I can't say there was anything that I didn't ask him about. Um, that one pretty much was, was that, that pretty much manifested as a better than I ever could have hoped for an interview that was completely off the cuff and happened in the moment. <laughs> and, and one of the things when you've got artists of the caliber of kiss who've been around like i said 40 50 years it is very <laughs> difficult to do a career span interview in 30 minutes even an hour if they gave you an hour how do you cover 40 plus years in one hour without literally spending 30 seconds on each point those sorts of artists in my opinion you will get the better interviews like with Paul, when you can really narrow it down to a set topic, yep. you know, Paul's guitars or, you know, back to Gene, you, you really didn't touch on the 80s. But if you had go been able to go into that interview saying, Gene, this interview, we're only going to talk about the non-makeup era, then you can really focus all of your attention on that one thing. Because again, how, how do you and a band like Kiss, which has had so many members, so many changes, so many ups, so many downs, successes, you know, failures, if you want to call them that, you can't cover all of that in 30 minutes to 60 minutes. No, you can't. It's impossible. Um, and that, get, that gets even trickier when they have a new release to cover where you have to cover that. And it leaves, you know what I mean? But I will say... You know that you can get a whole hell of a lot out of 30 or 40 minutes. You just you can't be you have to find the balance between being too granular. Um, you also have to know who you're talking to. You know what I mean? Like uh, I'll use Joe Perry as an example. I um, if you're going to interview Joe Perry for Aerosmith, you know, you could sit there and get hyper granular and say, how'd you meet Steven Tyler? How'd you meet Brad Whitford? How'd you meet Joe? You know. But the really thing is, you know, there's a but the, the key to that is really you have to key in on their accomplishments within the history. Understand the, the big points. It's like if you're talking about, let's say you're talking to Dave Mustaine, how many albums does Megadeth have? We can't sit here and cover every single album. And let's be honest, Dave Mustaine doesn't want to. So, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do. You know, if there's a very important album that's having an anniversary or, you know, there's something happening, you can harken back to that. Give them a reason to want to talk about something from history. And if you're just doing a straight up, quote unquote, career spanning interview, you do have to hop around a little bit and sort of cover a lot of different points. You have to understand what's important. You know, with Kiss, obviously, I'm talking to Gene Simmons, you know, and I want to get something 
worthwhile. So I don't want to just start with, boom, how would you meet Paul Stanley? Let's find out for a second who Gene Simmons is, you know, the child in Israel, okay? Let's tie that into because that's the whole reason why he became infatuated with superheroes and the demon. You ha if you don't start there, then you don't know how he became the demon. And once he became became the demon, you know, where does everything else fall into line after that? And after that, of course, one of the cool questions I asked him was about the brotherhood that the four original members have. And the reason I did that is because a lot of KISS coverage right now is extremely negative. And um, it's it's all, is Ace Freely going to play? Is Peter Chris going to play? Or, you know, they're not going to play. Why aren't they going to play? Vinnie Vincent is terrible. Peter's terrible. There's a lot of negative stuff. Or and then you just have all the dopey stuff. Is he, Are they using backing tracks? Should they have retired? The second farewell tour. And especially with the original four. So... I wanted to give Gene the opportunity to talk about that, hey, things did get really crappy twice, um, but there was a time when we all really loved each other like brothers and we made some really great music. And, you know, he did he did go into that. And um, so when you're putting together a career-spanning thing, you have to find the balance and key in on their accomplishments within the band sometimes and their intention for why they did things with these key people in the band rather than just saying let's cover every single point in a 50-year history which is impossible yeah ab absolutely impossible with with somebody like again kiss or any artist that's 40 plus years of of continuous performing you can't you can't expect to get everything covered and if you try to, you end up with uh, what I feel like ends up being an interview that's just weak across the board because you could never get anything substantial out of any question because you literally had to sit there and go, all right, you gave me that answer, but now I got to jump to the next album. I got to jump to the next era, the next version of the band. And give me your 30 seconds on that because then we got to jump to the next one. Um, you know, it, it's impossible to do all that. Yeah, you know, and, and to your point, covering, covering, uh, sometimes it's really great when you have an opportunity to cover a specific error because that that's when you do get really granular. Like, I'll give you an example. I interviewed Bruce Kulick, and this is a little insight for KISS fans that don't probably don't know this is happening yet, but uh, last year Guitar World did an 80s issue, and they're going to they're gonna do an issue uh, um, on the 90s this year, and... Um, I interviewed Bruce Kulick for that, and we talked about Kiss in the 90s. And um, it's really cool, you know, to, to talk to Bruce about, you know, a specific era in time. Because you get that's when you get really granular and you can say, okay, you know, yeah. what, was, what was the band's mindset coming out of Hot in the Shade for, you know, going into Revenge? Or, you know, tell me about how Bob Ezrin affected your guitar solo while you were for Domino. You can get really granular. And, you know, what was the what was the atmosphere around the band during Carnival of Souls? You can ask these questions. And um, so it's cool to be able to do that. It's, but it's that's a whole different type of thing because you're locked into like a period. And so obviously you need to really get as much as you can about that period rather than just you don't have to cover a large span. So it's right. different techniques. There's a lot of different things that go into it when you're, you know, depending on the type of interview you're doing. Um, if you were to be given an opportunity to do a, another interview with Gene and Paul, 
together or separately, what would you focus it on? Hmm, good question. Depends on the it depends on the outlet. Um, you know, there's a, it, it, it depends on who I'm talking to. You know, I actually talked to Gene Simmons twice last year. I, I talked to him for 20 minutes quickly just on the 40th of Creatures of the Night for Guitar World, which was online. And then I did the big old interview for Rock Candy, which was the everything. It all depends, you know. Um, you know, I, I've talked to Paul Stanley about Soul Station. I've talked to Paul Stanley about guitars. Um, but what I really love to, to dig into with them, I would love, you know, in recent years, I think we've found out a lot about just how bad the reunion era was. More and more things come out all the time, it seems. Uh, I'd love to sit down and talk about a really and get a really honest interview out of either of them about the conversations they had with Eric and Bruce, um, the real, you know, the real intentions. And, you know, that stretches back because I, when I talked to Larry Mazur, I outright asked him, I said, you know, there's always been rumors that Ace Freely was rumored to be asked to rejoin Kiss in the late 80s and Eric was going to be jettisoned from the band and all this crap. And he had vehemently denied it. But I don't believe him. And uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence that suggests otherwise. And I, I guess I would just like to know how far back the reunion talk really does date, what the nature of that was, and just how it all truly, the truth, the crux of how that really unfolded, and then what it was really like once it happened. Because there's yeah, a lot you know, there. My, 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 my take on that specific topic is I think reunion talk basically happened from the moment they took the makeup off until they put it back on. It was always there. It was always, somebody was always bringing it up. Now the difference is talking about it is one thing. Did the band and management actively put deals and negotiations into place to try and make it happen? And you know, I would suspect, I, I, this is just my personal guess, like in, in Larry Mazur's case, I suspect, no, from a management standpoint, there was not active, let's try and make this happen. Let's talk to promoters. Let's, let's talk to lawyers on ACE's side and KISS's side, and let's, let's figure out how to make this happen. I don't think it gotten to that point yet. Was there always talk of it? Of course. I mean, you can't you can't even sit there and look at the Rise to It video where they put the makeup back on and go, gee, you don't think at least Gene and Paul, you know, over coffee at a deli were like, you know, what would it be like if we did this? You know, so I I see it that way. You know, there there's there's things that always happen. Gene and Paul talking amongst themselves, fans talking amongst themselves versus let's call up you know the big promoter and go how much are you willing to pay if we can make this happen okay now let's call ace's lawyer and go we got a bite are you in on this that i'm not sure happened yet i don't think that that happened i do think you know my understanding of what i've heard is that you know, that era, that hot in the shade era in particular is a, is a very volatile time in the band. And I think, you know, I, I would I would bet 
that Eric Carr was out of that band. As I understand it, Eric Singer demoed most of Hot in the Shade. And the only reason he didn't really get involved with it is because he decided to get involved with Badlands instead. But um, like it was on the table for Eric Carr to be removed from the band. And uh, I know that, and I don't think that like it act, the actual look, you know, conversation was had per se with lawyers like let's bring ace Freely back into the fold what's going to take but I, I i think there's more to it than you think and you got to remember larry mazer was the guy that said to paul and gene let's bring ace on as an opener he, he told me that he's like it was my idea i wanted to do it i thought it was a good idea um so it's hard to say where that rabbit hole sort of you know where that goes and where that ends because like you said there's, there's certain conversations we're never privy to but my personal belief is that eric carr was slated to be out of that band and for one reason or another he wasn't and that he would have been out of that band after hot in the shade whether he passed or not and i think that there was at least a thought that maybe we could bring ace back into this thing now whether that would have been makeup at that point or not is another story but that's always the thing. I would love to know exactly the ins and outs of that. I mean, because there's other things that went on. You know, when I talked to Kevin Valentine, the guy who played drums on Psycho Circus and a track or two on Hot and Shade and a track on Revenge, he said that, you know, when he was working with Peter Chris on the drums, it was so bad that there was conversations about him sitting under the stage to play drums with Peter miming. And then in the 11th hour, he got it together. So... It's like, basically, I, I would love to find out from Gene Paul if I could. Let's say, let's do an interview about 1989 to 1999 or 2000. Honest, you know, what exactly was going on there with Eric Carr, Eric Singer, Peter Ace, the reunion, the whole nine yards. Because it's, it's probably one of the most convoluted eras in the band's history across the board, really. Yeah, you know, and... I I personally feel like an interview with Gene and Paul about topics like that will never get the real truth. No. You've you've got to um gotta to talk to other people that maybe were in the inner circle at one point in time and aren't, that were related, that were working. Um you know, we you know, we we, we talked to oh God, my mind's blanking right now. Um, the guy from who used to be the president of of Universal who did Gold Mountain, um, uh, Danny Goldberg. Danny Goldberg. Mm. Um, you know, he was you know, he was involved at the label at the time and you know, in our interview with him, he basically said I, while I was at the label, was the one that pressured Gene and Paul to finally take that makeup off and then fast forward to you know 95 96 I'm at the label and I'm pressuring them it's time for you to put it back on <laughs> you know so I think interviews with those sorts of people will fill in what's going on will will Gene and Paul ever admit that Eric Carr was done and out I don't think so. I, I, I think that's something that's going to come from somebody else who has knowledge of the situation who would be more willing to speak about it. Um, 
you know, would Gene, Paul, Larry open up about reunions in the late 80s? Maybe not. Would somebody who worked at Mercury Records at the time? Probably. You know, if you got the right person who said, oh, yeah, you know, I was an A&R guy at Mercury Records. And I distinctly remember we had a meeting with management. And we said, you know, we're all for this. This is what we think you guys need to do. Yeah. Did it move from there? Maybe, maybe not. But that's, the, you know, that's how we kind of approach it here on three sides. It's like you get that one guest who might just have one nugget that fills in a missing link in the chain of this story that's been going on for 50 years. Yeah, I mean, especially with that era, if you look at it, <clears throat> As we know, you know, Paul did his solo tour. Singer played drums. According to Kevin Valentine, Eric Singer demoed most of Hot in the Shade. Um, and that the Kevin, I believe he recorded You Love Me to Hate You. He was working off of Eric Singer's demo. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of that. And I asked him, I was like, is there any other tracks that you played on, on Hot in the Shade? And he's like, you know, I did record other tracks for Hot in the Shade but they didn't, they may or may not have ended up on the record. And it's hard for me to know exactly what's mine and what's not through the studio trickery. He's like, and you know, on the 11th hour, Eric Carr came in and, and did his recording. And then, you know, you look at what happened after, I mean, Eric passed, but the first person they called was Eric Singer. It's just, it's, you know, and I, when I interviewed Loretta Carr, she echoed similar sentiments where she felt like, you know, there was definitely problems in the band and Eric loved Kiss, but, you know, there was issues there. Um, and it's the same thing. And then, you know, once the reunion happened, it's just sort of the same issues again, where they were calling Kevin in to play drums. And on the record, they didn't feel Peter was up to snuff. And I thought it was very interesting. I, I'd never seen it. I don't, I don't know if it's out there or not, that it was, it was proposed that, especially on the Psycho Circus tour, that Kevin played drums under the stage because initially Paul and Gene did not feel that Peter was up to snuff. And this is after he did relatively well on the reunion tour. So that was a interesting revelation about it. It didn't, he said it did not come to pass, but it was, it was definitely talked about. And it was, if not almost a go at one point, you know, uh, that's news to me, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, one of the things I've learned about kiss and basically any band of that level, they've got to prepare for contingencies for everything everything you know we're talking multi-million dollar world tours there's a lot on the line and i mean we know for a fact that you know they they traveled with um uh an ace fraley costume for tommy thayer yep. just in case and i think there's a lot of that i think it says something about the experience and the smarts of Gene and Paul, I guess, to prepare and be ready for that. They knew their history with Peter and Ace. Not that they were messing up again, but they had done it and they needed to be ready in case it happened again because you can't just pull the plug on tours the size of a KISS tour because all of a sudden Peter can't play anymore. You need to, how, what, what's our go-to? What's our backup? You know, okay. Backup is Tommy, get out there. Backup, 
Ed Cannon put you in makeup. You're going up on stage as Peter Chris. Whether we get the exact ever real truth about what led to that, we may not, but you can take all of the various third-party stories and put it together. I think they have, and any band has to be properly prepared. And that means asking those tough questions of like, okay, you know, and, and those tough questions might just be between Doc, Gene, and Paul. Okay, Peter can't cut it. What are our options? Well, we could have a drummer under the stage ready to go. Who, who would be the drummer? Well, we just had Kevin Valentine on Psycho Circus. He could be the first go-to that, you know, nobody's, nobody's going to suspect. Um, I think that that shatters the magic of rock and roll for a lot of fans, but these bands are big, big business and they're doing big business with other corporate entities. They have to have backup plans ready to go, you know? A guitar player can't perform, a singer can't perform, you know, a drummer can't perform. What can we do if we have to keep this machine moving? And and how do we how do you know what's our what's our PR spin gonna be if this ever has to happen? Yeah, and I, I agree. Kiss if nothing else always has a contingency plan. I um so yeah, that would be if I could if I could sit down with Gene or Paul and get the real scoop on that, that, that era of the band. Um, I would, I, that's what I would love to do. I think they've been very forthcoming for the most part about the eighties and the seventies. And there's really no reason for them to be not forthcoming about the last 20 years, but that one, that one decade or so stretch, there's a lot of gray area there. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, you, you see another tidbit pop out, you know, Kevin Valentine played drums under, or was going to play drums under the stage, or, or Bruce Kulick actually played bass on Psycho Circus, or Eric Singer demoed Hot in the Shade. You hear all these things, and you're like, and then you start to make connections, and <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, for years, people didn't know those things, and um, that's the reality of what happened. And there's reasons for why those things happened. And it's like you said, you're probably only ever going to get those tidbits out of ancillary people. Um, but it would be if I could put together my dream interview with Paul or Gene and really get probably some info that just is not out there with good reason. Um, that would be it. The truth behind all of that. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the potential great interviews come out of picking eras of, and not just kiss, this would be any band eras of change turmoil um anything along those lines where you want to get greater clarification you know the 79 to 83 era of kiss huge amounts of change happening the 89 to 96 era of kiss huge amounts of change happening you know band members changing um, makeup on, makeup off, you know, uh, highs to lows of album sales and success of tours. You know, you go from a great successful tour like Hot in the Shade to a tour like 
Revenge, which was a bomb tour, you know, and and then the great thing about Kiss is we can look at historical references, you know. Okay, well then now let's go back and look, look at, you know, they coming off of, you know, granted we know like the Dynasty tour wasn't as successful as they thought it was going to be, but it still played to big crowds. Um, and then you end up with the Creatures of the Night tour, which was a bomb, absolute bomb. And, you know, can can what happened in that era kind of mirror and tell us something about what happened 10 years later when the makeup came back on and you've got, you know, you've got two albums, Creatures of the Night and Revenge, which are, you know, seen by many, many KISS fans as incredible, pivotal, great albums by them. That at the time basically flopped, basically were failure albums. You know, neither of them initially went gold right away. It took Creatures of the Night a long time to finally go gold. Um, but both those great works of art led to huge changes within the band. What was going on internally? Like you said, w- it, that that's where you'd love to get that honest interview with with Gene and Paul and other people at the time and go, what was going on internally? Hey, Bruce Kulick, you were there on that Hot in the Shade tour. Don't be such a nice guy. Tell us the truth. You know, what was really going on? You were, you were witnessing it. You were there. You may not have been part of the meetings, but you had to know what was being discussed and felt. I will say in my interview that I did with Bruce about the, uh, which you'll see later this year, about the 90s, he did, he, he did get a little grittier than I've seen him get in the past, which was awesome. Uh, you know, I've talked to Bruce a bunch of times, and um, he's he's so, he's just such a great guy. But he he did get a little grittier, and I it's, I think it's going to be an interview that fans are really going to like. But um, yeah, you know, one of the things I would love to ask Paul and Gene, you know, you've heard it before. Larry Mazur said this, and Doc McGee disagreed with this. Was that Kiss maybe perhaps sacrificed some artistic integrity to maybe regress back into the makeup? And I agree with that. Um, I've said it many times and uh, I feel the revenge in Carnival of Souls era of Kiss uh, is the most musically sound and musically gifted lineup that Kiss ever had. Now, that's not to say I don't love the original lineup of Kiss. Love Ace Freely, love Peter Chris. They created the initial sound of Kiss. But I, I just think that the singer Stanley Simmons Kulik lineup, they left so much on the table by not continuing. Whether you like it or not, the musicianship demonstrated on Revenge and Carnival of Souls, it's top tier stuff. I mean, is it is it the same thing as Dress to Kill or Destroyer? Absolutely not. But if you look at it from the perspective of these are great rock records made by a transcendent band, you you can maybe try to appreciate them a little more. And I think that, you know, I like, I lament the fact that the kiss couldn't continue on uh, making music with that lineup. 
And don't get me wrong, again, I actually really like the current lineup of KISS. I think Tommy Thayer's a great guy. Uh, I, I totally respect him as the longest tenured KISS lead guitarist in the history of the band. Uh, I have no issue with him wearing the makeup. I don't care. He's doing a job. He's doing what he's asked to be doing. He's doing what he's asked. Anybody in that position would do the same. He puts on a great show. And I really enjoy the three albums that he's played lead guitar on, Psycho Circus, Sonic Boom, and Monster. Um, but I just, I love that 90s lineup. Uh, I think they could have made some really great music. And I would love to broach that topic with Paul and Gene and just say, because like I know that Gene was super into that music. Even Bruce has said, Gene was really into this dark, grungy music. And so I guess I would love to talk to Gene especially about this and say, do you feel you left anything on the table by choosing to put the makeup back on? And let's let's face it, regress back into what you were in the 70s to fill concert stadiums, uh, which I get. I get why they did it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it you know, it was a it was a business decision. It was a financial business decision, which, again, fans don't want to hear. But, and this isn't just Kiss, every single band that's out there making a living is a business and it's professional and it's about making money. Yep. Because they they can't create anything, whether that's an album, a tour, or whatever, if they don't make any money. For them to survive, they have to make money. And I think Gene and Paul, you know, were in that situation as a band where there was a huge pot of gold waiting for them at some point with that makeup coming back on when was it you know that well, would it have been too early to do it in 89 and the payday would have been smaller than it was in 96 hard to say probably i mean based on what we know on how well the reunion tour did um it was a huge payday huge success but but like you, yeah, I would I would love to get honest interview with each of them separately. I think it has to happen separately as to what was going on from Revenge into Carnival of Souls, especially. You know, we know Bruce loves it. We know that that Gene had more love for it. But again, in our our conversations with people from the outside. You know, we're hearing that Paul was just like, I, I'm just doing this because this is all I can think of that's going to save the band right now. You know, we, we did such an incredible album with Revenge and it went nowhere. And, you know, is this, you know, it was, was Carnival of Souls equivalent to Kiss jumping on the, the Dynasty, Unmasked, more pop disco bandwagon where they were just like, we got to jump onto something to try and give us more life out of this. Um, what was going on in the heads of Gene and Paul that said, rather than revenge part two, and I think I know the answer based on what we've seen Gene's answers before. Why didn't they do revenge part two? Revenge was a, you know, kiss fans overwhelmingly loved it. Carnival of souls is a great divisive album 
even amongst Kiss fans. You either love it or you hate it. There is no in-between of it's an okay, decent album. I mean, I'm, I'm in the camp of it, it shouldn't have the Kiss logo on it. It should be a Bruce Kulick solo album featuring the members of Kiss. Sort of like what Wendy O. Williams did with her Wow album. You know, it's yeah. Wendy O. Williams with Kiss all over it. What was going on in their mind? Was it, you know, or at least in Paul's mind, was that, dude, we got to do whatever we can to keep our career alive. And if that means jumping on the grunge bandwagon, and becoming a darker, grittier band. Okay, I'm willing to try that. But then, did anybody sit there and go, you're Kiss, that will never, ever work. You will never be accepted by the grunge fans because you're Kiss. And the Kiss fans are going to go, what the hell are you doing? This isn't revenge. At some point, the honest revelation I want to have come out in those those eras of what was driving those decisions yeah you know it, it's funny with carnival of souls you make a good point it's a very polarizing album i um i'm in the opposite camp of you with due respect of course i i, I think it's just i see here's the thing about kiss and why carnival of souls being what it is doesn't bother me because a lot of people when they think of kiss they think of dress to kill Kiss Alive, Destroyer, Love Gun, and they say, that's Kiss. That's what Kiss sounds like. But here's the thing. The reality is, is that if you look at Kiss's first record, which is like a proto-glam rock record, and then let's, let's kick it over to hot, Hotter Than Hell. It's like a weird, almost psyche, strange, heavy album. And then we have Dress to Kill, which is like a power pop album almost in a way. They they have never kisses from album to album. They've never made an album. I guess with the exception of perhaps lick it up, animalize, and asylum. There's really not a whole hell of a lot of continuity from kiss album to kiss album. They all sound different, be it production or producer. You know whatever it is. There's you know if you look at lick it up as opposed to kiss's first album, totally different albums which is fine. So if you apply that and you say, well, Revenge is an album that's revered and loved by most Kiss fans, and most Kiss fans also revere and love Destroyer, those albums, aside from the fact that they're both by Kiss and both by rock band, both rock albums, sound totally different. And so I apply that thinking to Carnival of Souls. Well, I say, well, here's another instance where Kiss has just come out and changed their sound again from album to album without any real regard. I mean, it's it's that way and it doesn't bother me and the ultimate thing is not that they play live songs uh songs from carnival souls live when they play it live it all sounds right i i, I was made for loving you is a disco song right it sounds great next to the Trent rock city live it's all good so and i like i like the record and the other thing to remember about carnival of souls most fans know this it, it didn't come out when it was supposed to the album, I think it really started to be recorded in what, like 94 or 95. So if you look at it in those terms, it it is sort of the natural progression from Revenge, which is a grungy album. I mean, Unholy, that's, that's Kiss grunging it out. I mean, that was played on MTV alongside Smells Like Teen Spirit and all that. So 
you know, you see the progression. And if it had come out when it was supposed to, rather than after the reunion and basically hung out to dry, I think a lot of fans would have been able to absorb it for longer in the proper context. And they might have different feelings about it. But again, I go back to the fact that, again, Kiss has never been an album that has really paid much attention to, to sonic continuity. And, it, it, you know... And that sort of comes with the band. It's not like when you listen to Led Zeppelin, you're like, from album to album, this sounds like Led Zeppelin. Kiss, I mean, if you were to sit down and listen to their discography from start to finish, you're you're gonna be all over the map. Oh yeah, I mean, and and that and that's why we have such deep and and tense conversations amongst Kiss fans because you know you can be somebody who's like Kiss is the first five albums for me that's the sound i love and then i will jump in and go now i love you know destroyer and rock and roll over that's that's my kiss sound and they're like no that that was a sellout that was polished and and you're right they've they've always they've always moved in directions i think in many cases it was more subtle moves um you know, as opposed to Revenge to Carnival Souls was a pretty drastic A to B change in sound and style and feel, in my opinion. Revenge had a more commercial appeal to it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it had the, it had Bob Ezrin's touch all over it. Yeah. Um, and and you know, maybe if there was an album between Revenge and Carnival Souls that kind of bridged that it would have been an easier transition but you know I look at it like you know Dynasty okay that was not bad it wasn't Kiss of you know debut album and it eased the transition to Unmasked which let's be honest Unmasked was as far away from a Kiss sound that a kiss fan could ever have and then you you know then you end up with the elder which goes well (laughs) you know honestly in my opinion the elder returned more to a kiss sound than unmasked definitely had and even some of dynasty the elder was just lost with so many other things you know it was lost because concept album and kisses and a concept band and there was no picture of the band on it and the makeup was a drastic change and the costume was drastic you know i've i've always thrown out there what if what if the elder was released with creatures of the night costumes and imagery would it have been heard differently because it was seen differently well you know that's a good point uh, the elder is an interesting record uh, i that's another one. I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago about underrated prog rock records, and that was right on the list. And I got a lot of people love that. A lot of people didn't. But it's funny, you know, also in the new issue of Rock Candy, I, I wrote one of the other articles I wrote was uh, I think it was 10 Gene Simmons, 10 of Gene Simmons, you know, most sinister tracks or whatever, whatever however they labeled it. And um, I had Mr. Blackwell on there and uh, A World Without Heroes. I think, um, I mean, the elder for as being really out there as a kiss album as it is i think it's a great album and um it's got some of the best songwriting i mean a world without heroes is an is an incredible song and mr blackwell 
and the oath are actually like two of the heaviest kiss songs like i mean mr blackwell yeah. is like black sabbath status and the oath um it's very heavy it's like got like this almost like iron maiden bass line going on it, 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 exactly and that's why i feel like a lot of people didn't hear that because they they got lost in the concept they got lost in the band changing their look dramatically they you know and i think what what that illustrates is what kiss learned by by the time creatures of the night had come out people weren't listening anymore they were just looking and you know you know creatures of the night as a kiss fan and again we'd say this all the time if you were there during that era if you had survived as a kiss fan through dynasty through unmasked through the elder when creatures of the night hit you were like oh my god this is so great that they're back they're back they're back they're back but nobody cared because it was still kiss wearing makeup and you know take the makeup off on that next album lick it up is is just a bookend to creatures of the night musically whole different reception and reaction because now the music was being listened to not the makeup yeah and it, you know with creatures that's um that's one of the cool things about it sort of i guess maybe getting its due finally 40 years later or whatever i would it's i mean i, I know a lot of kiss fans you know the the original four purists don't want to hear it but uh i i don't see i think creatures of the night is the best record they ever did i really do and you know, just because it doesn't have Peter and Ace on it doesn't mean it's not the case. It's it's just so freaking good. It's a great album. Um, it has it all. It, it's 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 a it's a quintessential record. Um, and the, the whole history surrounding it's incredible. Um, I think it's their best record. I really do. And you know, it just goes to show you you, you don't have to have the original members in the band to make a great kiss record <laughs> no no i again we've always said this about any band it at the end of the day it's about the songs and you know for me personally if it's a great song i don't give a crap who's playing on it i'd rather have a great song that has only one member of the band playing on it and three studio musicians than a crappy song that's got all four originals on it why would I? Li- why would I? Li- I'm not going to listen to a crappy song just because it's got four original guys on it. It's a crappy song. I'm never going to hit the play button on it again. Yep, I agree. So yeah, I would say if I if I and I guess to go back to kind of getting the the real juice out of Gene and Paul, one thing I would say is that if I ever had the opportunity to do it, I think you'd be more likely to get that authentic interview out of Gene. And it would have to be after Kiss gets off of the road for good. If you were going to do it with Paul, I I don't know that he has thick enough skin to sit down and uh, you know deal with the ramifications of really hashing all that out. And if you did do it with him, you'd have to be you'd have to handle it with kid gloves and be extremely nuanced and kind of know when to 
hit the brakes and, and ease up on him. He he's not the kind of he's honest and you know, but he's not the kind of guy that that likes to get super gritty. I think Gene, I think I think we're gonna be surprised when Kiss gets off the road and he's no longer clamped down by the Kiss media machine, so to speak. I think we're gonna see some really gritty interviews start to come out and. To that end, I think that Peter Chris is going to start talking very soon in a very gritty manner. <laughs> well, he's not talking, and he will. He, he, yeah, you're right. And I think at some point in time, the the one person who's got a lot to say that will fill in a lot of holes, and when the time is right, it's going to be Bruce Kulick. Yeah, I think so too. He, you know, uh, you know, they people always joke. You know, nobody writes books until a band is dead and over because you don't want to piss people off and never have work again. So, you know, will it take kiss to be dead and over and not physically the members dead, but the band is over, you know, will that be the moment where Bruce goes, okay, been sitting on this book for decades. I got a lot of stories here. And, 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 I'm not, and I'm not and I'm not saying that it's from a airing the dirty laundry type of stories, but that whole era of the 80s, basically all we've had are Gene and Paul's version of it. Now, granted, yeah. over time, we've gotten a lot more of that filled in. I mean, if again, if you were there during the 80s, you had no idea of the inner turmoil that was going on between Gene and Paul. We had no idea that was going on. Uh, sure, we saw Gene going off to do movies, but we figured he was still in the band and he was still, you know, helping produce albums and still writing songs and he was still touring. We didn't know that he would basically just walked away from the band and left it to Paul to run. That came many years later that we got that truth. Will Bruce be able to finally shed the truth on what was going on between those two guys and how did it impact the band and how did it impact sound? I mean, we all sit down and go the eighties. It's basically Paul Stanley solo albums with a kiss name on it. <laughs> yeah. Which, I think, you know, as you listen to them, you go, yeah, that makes, makes pretty good sense. And I think it peaked with crazy nights. That was an out and out Paul Stanley solo album that just had the kiss logo on it. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that when, I think after this tour is done and Bruce climbs off the stage for the last time at Madison Square Garden or whenever, wherever the last Kiss show is, I think, yeah, I think we'll start to see some interesting things come out. And uh, I think you're right. But he has, he has over time incrementally getting a little more gritty now. And it's probably yep. because he senses the end is near. He is no longer anything to lose you know he, he still had i mean i'm sure he's still friends with them and, and and he's very bruce is nothing but genuine when he says how much kiss meant to him and how much he loved it but to that end how much did that hurt when he was ejected from the band unceremoniously yeah. probably a yep. lot <laughs> yeah yeah you know did it did it hurt him when they asked tommy to be the guitarist and replace ace no nope. you know it didn't you know, we, we, we know what very good insights to that end. We, we, we know what he said, but, you know, is is he still saying it in a somewhat diplomatic manner where, you know, may, you know, 
he he has come right out and said if they had asked me to put the makeup on i would have said no yeah but really is it not is 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 the bigger issue that he was just never asked would he have liked to have been asked that's a good question would he have liked to have been asked that's the good question you know i i I liken that to anybody who's been married you know you'll hear from your wife it's not it all that matters is you didn't think to ask me it's not that we would have done it i just wanted you to ask yep and you know was that it is was it just hey gene and paul you didn't even ask me you didn't give me the chance to say thank you but no I think Tommy would be better for this. Yeah. I think even, I, you know, I don't think that they ever would have asked him. And the, the reason is very simple is because Bruce, and he said this many times, he prides himself on that. He retained the soul of the classic tracks, but he was allowed to make them his own. And he has said explicitly that he never would have wanted to be ace freely he didn't he had no interest in playing like ace freely and the biggest reason why tommy is in the band now and aside from the fact that he's an excellent guitar player a great performer a consummate professional and a, and a, by all accounts a great guy to be in a band with is and this is the distinction that people need to understand is that he's not copying ace freely you have to remember if you even harken back to his black and blue days the guy's style he plays in that 70s classic rock well, blues style. And so it's yep. obviously you wouldn't choose Bruce Kulick, who's going to go up there with his ESP guitar and play this more kind of hyper melodic, you know, 80s inspired thing. Tommy was the logical choice because he doesn't have to copy Ace Freely. He plays a lot like Ace Freely. Just by a- a- Ace Freely was the guitarist who influenced Tommy as a kid growing up, which makes, you know, any, any fan out there who grew up and influenced by Ace Fraley. Yeah. You're going to have your own feel to things, but if Ace Fraley was the reason you picked up the guitar, you're going to have part of Ace Fraley embedded in what you do, because that was what influenced you. Those were the albums you bought. Those were the shows you went to. And, and I've always said that about Tommy. I mean, you know, if you need somebody to replace Ace Fraley, what is a better choice than a person who grew up influenced specifically by Ace Fraley? Bruce Kulick didn't grow up influenced by Ace Fraley. He was influenced by different, different musicians. And that's great. It gave Bruce his style. But who understands Ace kiss and kiss fans better than somebody who grew up influenced by ace to become a professional musician yeah i mean exactly i mean bruce kulik's a direct contemporary of ace freely they're about the same age and bruce's influences come from hendrix and clapton i mean you gotta remember tommy thayer is only 60 he's what 12 years younger than ace freely he grew up as you said watching ace freely and you know it's at the end of the day could Bruce Kulick put the makeup on and go up there and do a good job and would it be a good show? Absolutely, 100%. But would it sound and have the look necessarily of Ace Freely? Would it no. have the feel? No, and it wouldn't. And and that's why, and that's not because Bruce isn't capable and not because he wouldn't put on a great show, because he would. It's that he just doesn't play like Ace Freely. He's not going to get up there with a Les Paul 
and do the ace freely thing. It's just not who he is. And I think that whether Paul and Gene asked him, it, that's, you know, I don't, who knows if they asked him, if they said, are you willing? But the, at the end of the day, they knew in their heart of hearts, just as Bruce has said, that it's not who I am. I, I, you know, kiss the goal up there is to make like it's 1975, as much as guys that are 70 year old can do that. And if you're not going to be able to do that with Bruce and the band, it, it's going to have a different sound. And um, that's, that's from what that, you know, that's the only reason why he wouldn't have been asked. That's why they were traveling with Tommy Thayer because they knew this is the guy he, he plays. He, like he, he was, he was a great backup as we talked about earlier in our, our discussion here. He was a great contingency backup. You know, he, he was great as a tour manager, but he could also strap on a guitar in a worst case scenario. And you know, with Tommy, I, I, you know, I hate all the, the the shade that gets thrown his way. I mean, Gene said it in the interview. How many, I mean, how many bands have you seen that continue on with new members? It doesn't matter. I mean, look, the reality is very simple when it comes to Kiss. You know, Ace Freely gave up the rights to his makeup. He said it was okay. They did it. Tommy Thayer is a great guitar player. Um you know, he's made some awesome music with Black and Blue. He recorded a cool album with Doro. He's got a great band called Harlow that he had back in the day. You know, he's proved that he can make quality music. He's not just some schlub. He's a great guitar player. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he, he, he got the chance of a lifetime. And anybody, anybody that plays guitar that was offered that chance to go, hey, you want to be a millionaire? You want to play Would guitar say for, yes. for the next 20 years? You're going to tell me that you sit there and say, oh, no. Oh, no. would, you, would, would you rather continue to play bars to 100 people and have a side job making extra income, or would yeah. you like to go tour the world first class? And look, I've seen Tommy Fair. I've interviewed Tommy. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever talked to, uh, and I have seen him live. He's a fantastic guitar player, a fantastic showman. He does those tracks justice. He, he gives his all up there for the fans. Uh, he constantly does interviews. He constantly does the right thing. He's one of the good guys. He deserves all the respect in the world because the truth of the matter is, is that if it wasn't for guys like Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer, there would be no kiss today. And for some fans, they, they think that would be better off. But I'm of the belief as somebody who loves the original band and my first concert was the original four that I'm glad that kiss is still around. And I'm glad that guys like Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer get up there and wear the makeup because it's a great show. And it, it doesn't matter to me that it's not Ace Freely and Peter Chris in the makeup. Sure. Would it be cool to have see Ace climb up there and play a show in this spaceman outfit? A hundred percent. But I don't feel shortchanged because Tommy Thayer is up there. Not the slightest. And, 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 and let's be honest. We've had two opportunities at that. History has repeated itself. I mean, I was, I was there for the, the end of the U.S. farewell tour it was a freaking disaster. It was a mess. Oh, yeah. It was a, not not just the last, very last U.S. show, but the last couple months of that farewell tour were just getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, the plane was getting sloppy. The attendance was dropping dramatically. I mean, to anybody out there who seemed, who wants to cry, put Ace Fraley and or Peter Chris back in the band and it'll sell out all the time. I'll go point you to the farewell tour where they were there and they were playing to 4,000 people in a half-filled yep. arena. 
because guess what? That doesn't mean shit. Doesn't. Gene said it best when I he, I interviewed him. He said it best. This is, I believe, a direct quote. He pretty much said, listen, he goes, if you're a baseball fan and you're out there watching a Yankee game, do you see people still holding up Alex Rodriguez signs? And I said, no. And he goes, yeah, well, guess what? When when we when we play to stadiums around the world, full stadiums everywhere, do you know what we almost never see? Signs that say "Where's Ace Freely." And look, that's not. I don't. I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I love Ace Freely. Uh, I love Ace Freely. Love Peter Chris. I, you know, in a perfect world, everybody would be fighting fit and best friends, and they'd bow out together. But that's like many bands. But that's the that's history. the mon- that's the monkeys. That's TV. Yeah, that's not real. Yeah, but like many bands in history, it ain't happening. And guys like Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer do a fantastic job. Kiss fans should can only be so lucky to have the smorgasbord of great players they've had over the years. And now for 20 years, I say it again, your longest tenured lead guitarist is Tommy Thayer. He, he, <laughs> he's the reason Psycho Circus happened, whether you hate the album or not. It's the reason Sonic Boom and Monster happened, whether you like the albums or not. And uh, he's the reason why, along with Eric Singer, that KISS continues. And that's really simple. And I'll say this. Let's just say, who else, Who, if it's not going to be Ace Freely, who else? Who would you put in his place? Who would make you happy? Because somebody <laughs> would be put in his place. Let's, you know. It, yeah, let's get real. <laughs> it, it's going to happen. So who would who would you want it to be? Yeah, I mean. Yeah. I, I, I look at it as, you're, you're right, I'm glad the band is still here, but at the end of the day, what that means is for every single one of us fans, we get to make the choice. Yeah. Do I want to go to the show or don't I? If you don't want to go to the show, if you don't like the band as it is now, it's 100% perfect. I completely respect that. Absolutely. And you get to make a choice for your life you know what? I'm never going to go see another show. I'm never going to buy another album. I'm never going to do anything again. That's the beauty of this. With any band, you get to make that choice. And the other fan who does enjoy it gets to make their choice. And guess what? Both those choices are right because all that matters is that one person. So, I, yeah, I don't, I don't get these people who wish it had ended and it was over. Why? It, 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 would that have changed your life if 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 Kiss had stopped playing 20 years ago and you've hated them ever since? Would your life be better? I mean, it's a rock band. Let's be honest. It shouldn't have that deep of an impact on your daily life that you wished so bad something wouldn't exist yeah i mean if you if you're the type of person that only likes the original four members and by all means go throw on kiss alive one and have a good time it's all good and you know if you only like the vinnie vincent era then you know creatures of the night and lick it up is, is for you and you know but if you're the type of fan that just is happy that kiss is still around and you love the band you love the music you, you still appreciate what they are and that i mean let's be honest Paul and Gene are the people that kept the band going the whole time anyway and get out and see the show and enjoy it. But it's just all the shade that gets thrown Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer's way. It's, it's really ridiculous. The guys, 
anybody in that position, you got you can't tell me that you were you were you know you're gonna high road them and say, oh no, no no, I'm not wearing Peter Chris's makeup. That's I've got that. more I got more integrity than the check you're offering me. Yeah, well, guess what? If Kiss called me today and was like, hey man, you want to come play the drums? Where like yeah, where to sign me up? I don't care. Let's do it. Let's let's make it happen. I. And if anybody, I wouldn't care. And I'm sure that Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer aren't crying themselves sleep every night. No, <laughs> no. God, they're, they're, they're laughing the themselves. Laughing. They're laughing themselves to sleep going, ah, right. I'm have, I love my life. Yeah. I just think it's so, it's, it's an interesting thing how fans can latch on to two guys who, for the bulk of the band's history, weren't even in the band. Eric Singer has been the drummer for the better part of 31 years. And Tommy Thayer has been the guitarist for 20 plus years now. Let's get real here. I mean, if we're going to talk about, did they start the band? No. I mean, but when does it become like, okay, he, he's the real guitarist of Kiss? <laughs> it's like, but, you know, and again, all, 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 all of that, you can, people can have all those discussions they want. But at the end of the day, it's just like, just make a decision. Stop yeah. buying something. Stop going to shows. Stop watching videos. I mean, why do you want to spend years of your life constantly complaining about something that you don't like? I mean, you know, it's a fact. Ace and Peter are not coming back to the band. They can't hold this band together the way Eric and Tommy can. They can't perform. Uh, you know, I, I, again, like you, in an ideal world, would I have loved that? Of course. But they just don't have they don't have the chops anymore to do it. So move on to something else, people. Just move on to what else would make you happy. Or just go back and live in 1976. That's fine. You can keep playing, you know, Destroyer and Kiss Alive over and over again. That's fine. That those are your memories. You're not going to recreate those. They cannot be reborn and rebuilt. I, all I can say is, like many things in life, the, the music and the things that we consume are a choice. And uh, if you make a choice to consume one portion of the band's history, then don't deride anybody else who chooses to consume all of it. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it, isn't it beautiful that we've all got freedom to choose what we enjoy and what we spend our money on. I've never once gotten a phone call from Gene or Paul forcing me to buy a concert ticket. Now, granted, I'm sure Gene would love to figure out how to do that, but <laughs> nobody's ever forced me to buy a concert ticket, a t-shirt, an album, anything along those lines. That's the beauty of all of this. That's the beauty of all music because it's all just personal taste. It's all it comes down to. It's very true. Yeah, that's Andrew, I, I, was, I was just going to say, Andrew, this has been awesome. This is the kind of KISS fan conversations that we love having here. And it's been over two hours now. Um, why don't you plug a few websites where you want people to go follow you, read articles that you've written, interviews that you've written, videos that you might have done? Well, you can you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at AJDWriter88. 
just where you can see where all my uh, various outlets, uh, all the things I write for Guitar World and Rock Candy and Ultimate Guitar, Goldmine and the like. That's um, you can follow. And then, of course, you can follow my own website, Vinyl Rider Music, um, which I should know. It's uh, VW Music Rocks. And that's on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And the website itself is vwmusicrocks.com. Uh, you know, that these days I don't post as much there myself. I still do occasionally, but the people that write for the website do. There's a lot of fun stuff, a lot of interesting things going on there. Other than that, keep a lookout for um, the things that I write in the print magazines, uh, print issues of Guitar World, Rock Candy, and Goldmine, and online, everywhere and anywhere, it seems. <laughs> and And if you want to pick up the new issue of Rock Candy, if you're in Europe, it's probably on the newsstands over there already. In the U.S., um, it's gonna it'll take a few weeks for it to to hit hit the the bookstores here in the U.S. But you can go yeah, to Rock Candy Mag and go to RockCandyMag.com and either purchase just a digital copy or you can subscribe to it there. Um, definitely check it out. They've, they've had a lot of kiss coverage over the years. You know, if you're, if you're a kiss fan, there's going to be a lot of the bands you grew up listening to that rock candy is going to cover every, every two months. They have a new issue. Yeah. We've got some really great stuff coming up in rock candy. As Michael said, you can get the digital issue. And I think I've seen it on newsstands and not the current kiss issue, but uh, you know, past issues do crop up in that music section in Barnes and Nobles and what have yeah, you. Yeah, it, 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 it can definitely be found at Barnes and Nobles, but, you know, I would say it might it might take a month for the new issue to finally show up and appear here. I mean, it's, it's being imported from Europe. Um, but if you want it right away, you can go rockcandymeg.com and you can get a PDF of it and download it right now and read it on your iPad. It's full color, everything that's in the magazine. Yeah, I will say the, the magazines I write for to get the full spectrum of the, the whole experience, you want to download, you want to subscribe to rock candy to get the, that great old school full coverage rock. And uh, I have to plug gold mine. I love gold mine. The editor, Pat Prince over there is a great guy. Um, you get that great collector's angle vinyl records and also some really cool just artist profiles all kinds of interesting things and then who doesn't love guitar world if you're a fan of guitars and, <laughs> and you like to read about people that play guitars that's the place to go yep andrew this was awesome thank you so much um we'll keep an eye out for your next kiss interviews hopefully you get your, your dream interviews soon <laughs> every time i think i got my dream interview another one comes but thanks no, for another having one me. shows up <laughs> appreciate it what a great KISS fan, KISS reporter, journalist discussion that was with Andrew. Um, you know, started out with how the interviews happen and talking to Gene and Paul. Just ends up with two KISS fans talking about all sorts of cool stuff. And I don't know, that's kind of that's what we're all about here at Three Sides. Um, I think for homework... Uh, if you've got the new issue of Rock Candy, I think it's issue 36 with Gene on the front cover and Paul on the back cover. What do you think? What, what do you think of the interview? Um, if not, 
have you read any of uh, Andrew's other work? I mean, you can find him everywhere, and he interviews many artists. Besides being a big Kiss fan, he interviews a lot of artists. So, do you uh, have you followed any of Andrew's work in the past? Um, you know where to go to leave your homework answers. I uh, apologize, Lisa was apparently using Mark's router, so she couldn't get back on, and uh, I'm just kept the ship floating here on my own that's it we will see everybody next week do you have something to say leave a voicemail or send us a text message call 320-515 voices for three sides of the coin provided by larrydavisvoice.com and by jessicamarsvoice.com that's mars with a z